Today on Truly Passive Income, we're talking to Tim Vitale, a successful multifamily real estate syndicator and founder of Upside Capital Group. Tim shares his journey into the world of real estate syndication and his strategies for analyzing deals. Learn about the importance of understanding the market, job growth, and the power of strong relationships with investors. Get ready for an insightful discussion on debt coverage ratio, timeframes, and choosing the right operator for a successful investment. This is Neil Henderson, and you're listening to the Truly Passive Income Podcast, your weekly show that simplifies investing passively in real estate syndications and other alternative investments for busy people who wish to be financially free. By unlocking the power of Truly Passive Income, it's possible to reach time, financial, and location independence and have the freedom to pursue a purpose other than trading your time for money. Welcome to the Truly Passive Income Podcast. I'm Neil. And I'm Clint. Let's get started. Today, my guest on the podcast is Tim Vitale with Upside Capital. He's going to be talking to us about multifamily syndication today. Tim, how are you? I'm good, guys. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Yeah, thanks for coming on board. Tim, we met locally here in Wilmington, of all places. But the actual, the first time that I heard about you was, I don't think you've heard this story. I've gotten into syndication. Neil and I are, are part Nomad Capital, and we're raising capital for self-storage syndication deals, as well as investing in our own deals. And I was talking to some different friends of mine. A buddy of mine in Daniel Island, Charleston, South Carolina, called me and was like, man, I don't know if you've heard about this Tim guy. There's some guy up in Wilmington that's buying and selling apartment complexes. And like my neighbor came to me, was like, man, you heard about this guy in Wilmington? He's like, I've got a buddy in Wilmington too. He called me from Charleston. And that's what I was like, who's this guy? And I looked you up and we have 20 mutual friends. And I was like, okay, we got to meet. And then next thing you know, you and I were one of the same real estate meetup, a small room. Yeah, I don't think I've heard that before. I actually can't remember really the first time we had come cross paths. Point is, you're Mr. Worldwide, so doing big things. Mr. Wilmington in Charleston, you mean. Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, your former career, and what you're doing now. Cool. Yeah, thanks, guys. So I'm originally from Connecticut, and I graduated from UNC Wilmington in 2012 with an accounting and finance degree. So I worked in Manhattan for a couple of years, and then for that same company in Manhattan, I worked remotely for them from Charlotte. So I spent about eight and a half to call it 10 years with another job included, about 10 years in the corporate finance accounting world. And I had worked up to assistant VP of finance and accounting at that Fortune 500 company. And I learned a ton of valuable skill sets from that W-2 job, learning how to build budgets and analyze businesses and profit statements, P&Ls, income statements, balance sheets, all that kind of stuff. The, the important stuff when it comes to evaluating commercial real estate. So I found my way into commercial real estate because I didn't really like the single family space. I bought a condo and I was making like $150 a month on it or whatever. <laughs> I'm never going to get to where I want to go at this space. And a friend of mine had introduced me to commercial real estate and I started looking down that path and just never looked back, cut the cord on the single family stuff and just been doing commercial real estate ever since. So you had a good job as an assistant VP of finance. Fortune 500 company in New York City. Clearly, you had an interest in real estate or we wouldn't be talking. What finally made you leave your job to pursue commercial real estate? Yeah, so I ended up leaving my job to pursue commercial real estate. And in order to answer that question, I got to backtrack just a little bit. When I had got promoted to assistant VP, I thought that this is when I was going to make it. So that's when you're making the 50, 100% raises and I was going to start making buku bucks and be able to buy the house on the water and the nice boat and all that stuff. And I went from making $99,000 a year to $103,000 a year. I was like, wait a second, 
this is not the Kool-Aid that I had been sold. So that was late 2018, early 2019. And then I started down the single family path. I did that for about 11 months. And then when I found commercial real estate at the beginning of 2020, I cut the cord with the single family stuff, like I said, and it went all in on commercial real estate. And what ultimately pushed me to leave my job before I was really making any type of money in commercial real estate was we were all working from home during the pandemic. And they finally told me I was going to have to go back to the office. And I looked at it and I said, I'm going to get fired for not doing my job if I go back to the office. So I fought for staying remote and they weren't having it. So that was on a Friday. On Monday, put in my notice and I said, I'm leaving. My wife has suggested over the weekend, let's sell the house and downgrade and sell everything and live off the equity that we have in our house. And we'll just go all in on the business and try to make it work. So ultimately, COVID is the main reason that pushed me out of my job. If it weren't for that act of having to go back to the office full time when I didn't want to, I probably would still be working my W-2 job. Early 2020, what a bold time. Get into multifamily development with moratoriums on evictions, burn on payment, and everything else tumultuous that was going on at that point in time. It's certainly a leap of faith. When you made that decision at that point, how many deal cycles had you gone through? Had you completed anything? Were you still in the education process? Like, I know what you've accomplished since then, and people are about to hear about that, but where were you in that deal cycle when you made that jump? So I did my first deal, which was a 92-unit apartment complex in August of 2021. I quit my W-2 job September of 2021 and sold everything and moved back to Wilmington, call it November 1st, 2021. So I had just done my first deal. I didn't even get a part of the acquisition fee because I was just brought in very late in the game. I had a very minority partnership piece of that deal, but that was the stepping stone that enabled me to have the confidence to drive forward and say that I had the experience in order to raise money and operate deals and underwrite them successfully. And I started to build that track record with that first deal. And I tell everybody the law of the first deal is just do whatever you can to be part of a team. I would have done it for free, to be honest with you, just to get that experience. And that that's where I was when we took that leap of faith and we sold everything and moved in, into the apartment was I, I had done one deal. I had two more under contract. I saw the writing on the wall or the light at the end of the tunnel. And the thought process was if I sell my house and I, it was like $150,000, $160,000 of equity, said that's enough money for us to live on for at least two years. And I said, if I can't put any money into the bank account in two years, it was never meant to be. So that gave me the confidence and that momentum in order to go all in on commercial real estate and sell everything. Wow. That's amazing. I'm in the same boat. I did the almost the same thing as you, as I sold a house that I had a ton of equity in, which allowed me the runway to take the chance to pursue real estate full time. I know the excitement and the stress that you feel. Yeah. They say that some of the most stressful things that you can do in life are have a kid, change jobs and move. I didn't have a kid, but I did change jobs and move within the same and sell a house in the same three month period. So that that end of 2021 was very stressful. That resonates with me. I made my exit stage left from a 16 year career in medical sales this past November to go full time into real estate a month after we closed on our new house and when my wife was 23 weeks pregnant and we are having our little boy this Friday. I understand the stress you're talking about. I remember talking to you about it and you were just like, no, dude, I'm never leaving my W-2 job. I love what I do. I was like, we'll see. You're right, Louis Roll. I'm happy to admit that because it's the best thing that's happened to me. Right. So let's fast forward. So since November, 2021, a lot's been happening with you. What's happened with Upside Capital? Tell me about the, your number of deals and your number of units. Yeah. So we went full cycle on that first deal. The 92 unit provided a 33% 
average annual return for our investors. It was literally a 12-month holding period. I ended up being the seller on that transaction as a minority partner, but also I was the buyer. So I ended up going from a very small position. I owned like 8% of that deal. Now I own 40% of that deal. Not the GP, the total deal there. We went full cycle on that deal, and we are currently in the process of selling and refinancing a number of properties. But since essentially August 2021 until now, which is call it a year and a half, maybe a little bit more than a year and a half. I've gone full cycle on one deal, have bought another 14 syndication. It's about 757 units now. I own a 4,200 square foot warehouse, some self-storage. I own a mixed use building that's got two restaurant triple net locations and the total portfolio is valued around 87 million or so. Not a bad 18 months. Not a 18 months, was it? Yeah. Give or take. Yeah, give it a great. So I want to circle back just for a second. One of the deals you said that you had roughly 10% of the deal, but then you ended up with, you still control it and it's 40% of the deal? Yeah. So we recapitalized that project and bought it with a new LLC and fresh debt. And I went from the minority partner on that deal to the managing member on that deal and walking away with 40% of the deal because I was able to sign the loan and write the earnest money check and raise almost half of the money. And I brought a lot of value to the table from 12 months prior to when I first got into that deal, 12 months later after that purchase in August of 2022, I brought almost everything to the table except for a handful of things, right? So like my value to the group had gone up substantially, which equated to a higher equity position in the deal. These are 506C deals? That one was actually a 506B for non-accredited. And it's funny that you asked that question. I don't know if you guys have this same philosophy or not. I think you only do 506Bs, but I like to do a combination of B and C. And for those that don't know, we always say B is for the boys, your crowd, like your friends and family. Um, and C is, uh, that was like C is C is for the crowd, right? So you can post it online and you can publicly advertise it and raise money from accredited investors. We actually do a combination of both because what it helps me do is be able to post about active listings that I have. And I also mentioned, hey, I also do 506B deals. If you're not accredited and you're interested in investing into a 506B deal, join my investment portal. But if you are accredited, you can invest into this one. It creates a little bit of that FOMO of, oh my God, what are these other deals that he has that I can't see because I'm not part of that portal. But I use 506Bs and 506Cs interchangeably. One, I use the C if I'm going to try to grow my investor list. But then the 506Bs typically be the smaller deals, the smaller raises, the ones that typically might have a little bit better returns because I like to offer those ones to our friends and family and the people that have done business with us in the past and continue to reinvest their money with us. So we don't publicly advertise it. And those best deals go to the 506B crowd. So how would you describe your overarching multifamily investing strategy to a passive investor? So it's interesting that you asked that because it was at a party this past weekend and somebody had asked that and he was like, I'm a realtor and I love real estate. And we used to own some investment property back in Maryland. And he was just like, I got so tired of managing it. And I said, good, that's where I come into play. This is where I help you. You help me, I help you. It's a win-win scenario. I do this full-time professionally. We are in the process of going vertically integrated and having our own property management company and things like that to manage these properties. But what that enables me to do is manage and operate these deals professionally on a day-to-day -day basis because I don't have anything else to focus on except for multifamily. And I have the systems and the processes and the relationships and the connections in order to operate these deals effectively and efficiently with minimal headache. I would consider it minimal headache, but as I'm sitting here producing over 400 K1s to our investors this year, 
and I'm going through all this tedious work I'll to say this, it is a little tedious going through all the tax stuff, but ultimately we've built the systems and processes in order to do the absolute best that we can to manage these professionally and to compare it to somebody that might own a handful of single family rentals or something is that you know, they do it on the side, what is it called? Moonlighting it, or they're doing it on nights and weekends and things like that. And they're probably tired of working all day at their W-2 job and then going to have to fix the toilet for whatever reason or pick up trash because they got a citation from the city. That's all I do during the day, right? So we focus on managing those properties really, really well in order to get the best returns for our investors. And we take a more scientific approach to it because we're looking at how to maximize the income and decrease the expenses in order to force that NOI or net operating income as fast as possible. For example, there's one property that we bought March 1st of last year for 4 million bucks. We just got it appraised for nine and a half million, 12 months later, right? More than 100% increase in value in 12 months. And there's another property, the 92 unit that we bought in August, we paid 6.2 million for it. And we just got an appraisal for 10 and a half million, eight months later. So we are very, very, very scientific on our approach to mm -hmm. income and expenses and managing depreciation and CapEx and cash flow and all those things. Because of my experience in my W-2 world as an accounting and finance major, that's what I look at. I look at cash flow statements. I look at the income statement, the balance sheet, and make sure that whatever decision we're doing for our investors is going to lead to the highest and best use of their money and the best level of returns. Tim, I'm really glad that you just mentioned that. There's a lot to unpack there. This podcast is called the Truly Passive Income Podcast, and we are focused on all things that are truly passive investment strategies. And there is nothing about what you do that sounds passive at all. It's You're clearly brilliant. You've got a strong background in finance that translated into a very successful career with commercial real estate, specifically value-add multifamily. But for people that don't live in this space, everything that you just said sounds exhausting. Now, we could talk about this all day. I'm nerding out on this, and I love it because this is what we do. This is what we're in the business of. And from the standpoint of our investors, I've made the point several times, and it's one of my core beliefs, that in order to have any level of success with real estate investing, you have to have three things. And it's time and experience and money. And this is a situation where there's a lot of people out there that have money or capital, but they don't have experience. And a lot of times they don't even have the time required to get the experience. So this is clearly a situation where this is your business. This is what you do. And you've taken your time, the experience you had from your work, and then the time that you had on the side during COVID to expand upon that. And now you're taking a combination of your time, your experience, and somebody else's capital to put together a successful real estate strategy that for that investor can be a truly passive investment. So from the standpoint of your investors, I know you do 506B and 506C, but either way, accredited or non-accredited, let's say that you have an investor, it's the first time they've operated with you. From the standpoint of hearing about you and what you do, can you explain to our listeners what that looks like all the way through the life cycle of the deal as a passive investor? There's one thing that I love about what I do is that, right, it is a win-win scenario that people are looking for that passive income. And in my opinion, you now call me right or wrong here, in my opinion, being a limited partner in the syndication or investing in stocks is literally the only thing that you can do that is 100% passive. Because now I'm not saying you're a good or a bad investor by investing in the stocks and you could just pick something and be done with it, right? But when it comes to being a passive investor in a syndication, there is less of an investment into the deal itself and more of an investment into the operator and the sponsor. So when you're investing into a syndication like what we do, you're not really investing into the project itself. You're saying that I trust Tim or I trust Clint or Neil 
with my money. And what happens over time is that those investors begin to learn what level of returns you offer, right? I have a typical window for my investors. It's 15 to 20% IRR, 15 to 20% average annual return. And I'm looking for typically a 2x equity multiple over a five-year period, five to seven-year period, right? So it can fluctuate a little bit, but if we can do a deal within that range, then that's good. And you can bump up the IRR by refinancing the money quicker or whatever. There's a whole lot of different things there, but that's generally our bucket, right? So I have a number of investors that they don't even look at what we have to offer. They're just like, they call me, they say, hey, Tim, I got 100K. Is this deal good? I'm like, yeah, of course, everything that I offer is good. Just do you like it? He goes, I don't really care about the property itself. He goes, if you tell me this deal is going to produce these level of returns, then fine. So all the investor ever has to do is build a relationship with one of us, for example, and then begin to trust us. And then you as an operator have to deliver on what you say you're going to deliver on. And that's how you start to build up that track record and that the credibility. But for the investor, at the end of the day, after they've built a relationship with you guys and you've delivered on their returns, what does that look like for them? So they sign the subscription documents that say, yes, I want to subscribe to X amount of units that costs X amount of dollars. And here's all my tax information, da, 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 send in the wire payment, and they're done. That's literally it. That's the only work that a limited partner has to do is to build a relationship, sign the documents, and send a wire payment. And then you can own that asset for 5, 10, 15 years, whatever the lifetimes end up being. You are purchasing a piece of equity into an LLC that owns real estate. And real estate is the vehicle that creates returns for the LLC, right? So what that means for the investors is they're going to get the appreciation, the depreciation, the cash flow, if there is any, and all the benefits of investing in real estate, but not having to do any of the work because the three of us do that professionally. We have the time, we have the experience, we have the systems and processes we have everything necessary in order to be a successful syndicator and run a successful business that creates returns for our investors, right? Typically for our investors, they're getting an update every quarter, every 90 days or so with how the property status is going, what are the renovations that are going on right now, especially on the value add projects. Everyone wants to know occupancy, what's the income, what's the expected income, where's all the money going, how much money have we spent to date, just providing an overall level summary of what's going on at the property in order so that the investors who are your partners, they're limited partners, but still partners, they have an understanding of what you're doing at the property in order to give them returns on their money. So once you know the property kicks off cash flow because your value add is done, you're getting distributions quarterly as well. So you time those to be fiscal quarter distributions. So we like to do January through March, distributed in April through June, paid in July, et cetera, and so forth. And then also our investor updates go out quarterly as well. And then at the end of the year, they get a 1065 earn that shows their partnership equity interest of the net income or losses, including depreciation. And they report that on their taxes and they're done, right? I mean, it's to me, it's the most passive investment you could possibly do because you build a relationship with somebody, you sign a piece of paper, you send a wire payment, and now your money's working for you through me for however many of years that you're looking for that money to be deployed for. So on the investor side of things, it's up to that investor to determine how long do they want their money deployed for? What location do they want their money deployed into? What level of returns? What level of risk, et cetera, and so forth. There's so many different variables there that only the investor can define. But you as the sponsor or the operator just say, hey, these are what I can offer you. And do you like any of these offerings? And let's go out and make some money together. Tim, I want to dig in just a little bit into the details of the kinds of properties that you pursue. You mentioned value add. 
Are you looking for a particular size, a particular age of the product, class of property? Can you tell us something about that? So we have done quite the variety of projects now. I would say my bread and butter is like a C to C plus asset built in 1985 or newer, somewhere around 70 to 80 doors up to about 140. We come in and we do the value add project with those properties and refinance out of them in 24 to 36 months or so. And then we typically go and put a five to seven year term loan product on that after we're done. That's my bread and butter. Now I have done deals that were guts, right? It was a D-class property. We brought it up to a C plus, maybe even a B minus gut. We Every single unit, all new subflooring, all new kitchens, all new bathrooms, new roofs, new parking lot, like everything. A to Z we did on that project. We just completed that one and we're working through a refinance now. I have to say that was a significant amount of work and so much time and energy and resources went towards that deal. I think I might shy away from doing something that much of a heavy value add again. Uh, but we also own brand new construction. So we have a 19 unit build to rent community in Boone, North Carolina. And that property, there's literally no construction because it was just, we got the CO and a certificate of occupancy and we closed on it. And it's just, it pays our investor. I mean, it's pumping off like units are pumping off like $45,000 a month in NOI. It's insane. And you know, the expenses are really low. It's a really low headache pro property, but there's not that much appreciation on the product because we paid a premium for it. And the offset there is you ride it out for five or 10 years with very low expenses. So We've done everything in the gambit of D-class value add, brand new class A construction purchasing. But I would say most of the things that we look to buy to do that value add project in order to give the investors the returns that we like is going to be that B or C-class property in 70s, 1980 or newer, 70 plus units. I think that in this space, in my experience, it's definitely there's economies of scale with the size of the project, but there's also inertia and momentum. Like in terms of finding your deals and looking for what you're going for, in my experience, it was as word gets out of exactly what asset class you're going after, you stop having to work so hard to go find them and people start bringing them to you because they kind of understand what your bread and butter is and where the market is. How did you guys start out sourcing your deals and how is that deal flow? Is it evolving for you or where is it now? Yeah. So uh, one thing that we like to talk about in our coaching program is to pick a single market and go really deep in that market. And that's how we started. And that's how we made one of our best relationships with a broker out of Charleston. And he keeps our pipeline completely full. We have like maybe three brokers that we have really great relationships with. And they know what deals we're doing because they were under contract with them on it. They know when we're going to close it. They know when to line up the next one. And they're just like, hey, here's the next one. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. But then that also that same broker had introduced us to the seller of one of these properties. And now we just closed on a property in Charlotte last week on a Monday. And then on Wednesday, we locked up an 88 unit property with him, right? So it's, we don't really have to go out and look for property anymore because our brokers and our sellers keep us full. Really the biggest thing is you want to make sure that you're somebody that people like to work with. So if you generally build a good reputation of being a closer and somebody that is easy to work with, does what they say they're going to do with sellers, brokers, and investors, like across the board, just if you do that, you're going to have more deals and opportunity than you know what to do with. It really is the law of the first deal, as they say, where once you've closed a deal or two or three, now the brokers know that you're the kind of person who will close on a deal. They're not, you're not a tire kicker. You're not someone who's going to come back and retrade with them all the time. And like you said, they will start bringing you those deals. Yeah, I would say we have only retraded on 
two deals before. And the reason that we had to retrade on it was because we were under contract or when they were doing 75 basis points increase in the rate like every other week. So we had to go back and retrade just because like we couldn't even close on the property anymore with the debt that we had. So the bank said we had to renegotiate or, or else they weren't doing the loan. And the other one we had to renegotiate on because that was it was misrepresented to us by the broker. When we had gone and done our inspections and due diligence and all that, we found out every single building needed pilings and piers put in because it was sliding down the hill. And then with that came a whole slew of other things. We're like, dude, like nobody said this. And now we didn't even come close to budgeting the right number, but we found all this stuff and you didn't disclose it to us. Therefore, we need to ask for it because if you had told us up front, then our offer price would have been significantly less accounting for this rehab that we would have been anticipating to do. So brokers know that about us. Like when we make an offer, that is our offer. We don't do the highest and best, best and final, whatever. We just, this is our offer. This is what we feel comfortable at. We know that we can perform. We're not going to retrade. If we find that our rehab budget is like 10, 15, 20% over or under, we're not going to retrade on that, right? Because that's not a significant enough number in order to make the deal not work. So we will always make sure that we, if it was represented to us right, we have a conversation with the broker about what our rehab number needs to be in the scope of work. And then we do our due diligence and we're right in that window. We're good. We're closing on the deal. We're not retrading. We're not being difficult to deal with. Sometimes we will have to ask for an extension, which we build into the contract where we pay money for, to extend a contract because of lending. Appraisals were taken six to eight weeks at one point last year. So had to use a couple extensions, but sellers understand like they were on the buy side once before and now they're on the sell side. So you just build that reputation of being somebody that they like to work with. And I, I guarantee you, you're going to have more opportunity than you know what to do with. So debt financing has obviously become more challenging of late. What is your philosophy on debt financing for your syndications? How do you determine the optimal debt to equity ratio and the loan terms? That's a really great question. So I'm a big believer in paying people to do what they do best. So I always pay a loan broker to analyze these deals and go out to market and get us the best loan option possible. They go out, they do most of the legwork. And then I do all the underwriting on our properties. So they bring me a bunch of different options and I'll have like 15 different spreadsheets going of all of the same numbers, but changing the debt here and there, like kind of tweaking it a little bit here and there and trying to see what the best option is for investors. So I'm looking at what the best returns are for investors, but I'm also looking what the best return is for me. And whatever good for me is good for them, right? First and foremost. So we're putting enough time and effort into each one of these loan purchases, acquisitions, refinances, whatever. So make sure that we're getting the best rate possible. And the leverage is a little bit less important to me as the rates and the loan terms. Because as you bring more equity to the table, your return on equity goes down, but your cash on cash return goes up. And where we are in the market right now, sometimes it's a little better to go in with more equity so that you have a safer cushion. If you come out on the backside and rates go back down, then you know, you're going to end up winning anyways because the equity multiple will be there. But what we're trying to do is make sure that the property is going to be safe and that there's going to be enough debt coverage there to pay its bills. Because nobody wants to have a capital call. Like a capital call will be a syndicator's death. And I make sure that we have enough money in reserves to pay out everything that we need to, and then build some reserves and make sure that the property can pay for itself. Because that's what we're selling when we're getting people to invest into our deals. And the worst thing I can do is say, hey, I know you already gave me $4 million to go buy this property, but I need a little bit extra more money because the debt service changed and the expenses aren't doing what I thought they were going to do. And now I underwrote it wrong and I'm going to need some more money. Nobody wants to give you more money after 
already invested money into the deal. So that's probably my first and foremost, the foremost of my mind, what I'm paying attention to is debt coverage ratio and time frame, right? Because the number one thing that's on your side with real estate is time. So I don't want to be locked into something that's on a 12 or 18 month refinance cycle, because if something goes wrong in the market, like it has over the last 12 to 18 months, hell, not even 12 to 18, but less like six to eight months, right? If something like that happens again, then I have cushion there to ride it out until the wave comes back up, right? So real estate over the long term, you're going to win, right? It's the people that get burned in the short term because they need to be in and out of something quickly. Those are the ones that are going to end up in hot water because they don't have time on their side. Yeah. You mentioned that you're looking for financing where what's best for you, but also what's best for your investors in your deal. And then that's one of the things that I truly love about syndication is that when you pick the right operator, there's true synergy there. It can be a win-win for everybody. Obviously it can be a win for the seller of the property, but for you and the investors that you have in on your deal, you have a wide interest synergy. You're both tied to the performance of the same property. So it gives the passive investor the opportunity to pick the right person. Obviously we talked about track record. And at this point, like you mentioned, sometimes you're betting on the individual deal, but more than likely you're betting on the operator. So you really kind of transition from betting on the horse to betting on the jockey. And when you the right person that has the right interests in mind, it truly creates synergy and a win-win situation for everyone involved. So with that in mind, and obviously the importance track record, what advice could you give to the truly passive investor when they're looking to invest in a multifamily syndication or any syndication across the board, like for that first time investor, what's the most powerful advice that you have? Go build a relationship with the person that you want to invest with. If you got to spend $200 to come fly to Wilmington to hang out with me for a day, go out on the boat or go play pickleball or whatever it is, spend the $200 before you invest 100K. Because there's a difference between shaking somebody's hand and talking to them mano y mano versus what you'll see posted on social media or what you'll hear in podcasts and everything is correct, right? But you can't really get a read on body language and personality and really seeing if there's a connection there. Because again, you're betting on the jockey, not the horse. And what you had said earlier about making sure that it's a, it's an aligned synergy there is, is the person that I'm investing with, do I agree with their thoughts, processes, their, their process of elimination and how they're going to make their decisions, right? Like, do I agree with their decision-making process? And the best way to get to know somebody is go have dinner with them, go have lunch with them, go hang out with them for the, whatever the scenario is. Like it's a very, very menial investment comparative to the amount of money or equity that you're putting into a deal. Do that to protect yourself because you might find that everything that I'm saying on this podcast is great and you agree with everything that I'm saying, but then you meet me in person, you're like, I actually don't really like this guy. And we're going to be in a partnership for five to seven or 10 years. And it's okay if you don't like me or you don't like the opportunities that I have or my business thesis, you could meet Clint and Neil and say, hey, I actually like what they're doing. I like their thought process. I like their systems and processes better than what I'm doing. And that's okay. There's a life of abundance. There's enough money and deals out there for everybody. And from my perspective, I just want to make sure that whatever that person is doing, I want to make sure that that is the best and highest use of their time and their money. And the same goes for me, right? I'm looking out of who do I want my investors to be because it's a five to seven year relationship right? I mean, we're going to be communicating with K1s and how the property progress is going and making distributions and having phone calls about whatever, right? I mean, that that's what comes with the relationship capital, right? And it comes with the part of the business. So go build a relationship with whoever you want to invest with first before just writing check and 
a couple phone calls and things like that are good, but definitely go spend some time in person with that person. So Tim, thanks so much for sharing with us today. If any of our guests want to reach out to you and find out more about what you're about, what would be the best way for them to do that? Facebook is honestly, go to my Facebook group, Making Moves Real Estate Community, or go to my website, upsidecapitalgroup.com my investor portal and all my contact information is there. Great, man. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate your willingness to share with the community and let everybody know what's happening with Upside Capital. Absolutely. Thanks again for the invite. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Truly Passive Income Podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment you could give us would be to share the episode with a friend and leave us an honest review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to let us know on Twitter, at Truly Passive. And remember, with Truly Passive Income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose.